Welcome to the Christ Institute's seminar series, The Four Horsemen of the Woke Apocalypse. I'm Pastor Levi Secord. In today's seminar, the second in the series, we examine the return of paganism. Pastor Aaron White from Redeemer Bible Church and the author of Minivan Manhood demonstrates how the rise of secularism did not actually bring about a less religious people, but merely the return of pagan thought and practice. Please listen carefully today as we examine the second horseman, a resurgent paganism. Well, good morning, and thank you so much for having me. I have enough notes for two hours, so I started cutting and striking, and so normally I like to be more interactive when I'm lecturing, and we'll do some Q&A at the end, but with your permission, I'm just going to put my head down and go to get all the information out, and then hopefully have more interaction in the Q&A. So if it feels a little bit like a lecture, it's by design because I want to get all the information to you. So off we go. We are looking at paganism. This is horseman number two of the woke apocalypse. The return of the gods. Dr. David Miller from Syracuse University, he's a death of God theologian, theothanatology. Uh, Basically, is this kind of another word for humanism. The idea that God is dead, if you remember when Time Magazine put that on the cover, that's what it's referring to. Dr. David Miller predicted that at the death of God, meaning the rise of secular humanism, we would see the rebirth of the ancient gods of Greece and Rome. So he was saying that humanism and anti-Christian mentality would actually give rise to the old gods. Was Dr. Miller correct? Has secular humanism, meaning the death of God, We no longer need God. We no longer need that proposition. We now, through science and technology and human ingenuity, are our own gods. Has that left a spiritual vacuum? I thought we were headed for a thoroughly secular, atheistic culture here in America. And yet this does not seem to be the case. So what I mean is, so I'm an apologetics major. 20 years ago, when I was an undergrad... Um, a lot of the apologetics material at that time was preparing my generation to inherit an atheistic culture. A lot of the arguments centered on engaging with atheists. People like then, of course, the rise of the four horsemen of the atheistic apocalypse, one of them being Richard Dawkins, that seemed to be the enemy that everyone was focusing on. I'm arguing in our lecture that even though that is still a valid apologetic concern, We are not inheriting an atheistic culture. That is not where things have gone. We are moving into a neo-pagan culture, a post-Christian, post-secular, neo-pagan society. That's what I'm arguing for. And as a pastor and as a father of five, I'm uniquely burdened to equip the saints apologetically to preach the gospel in a post-Christian, neo-pagan culture. Essentially, you are returning to Athens in Acts 17. A lot of our young adults are going to come into careers, into educational experiences, and into neighborhoods where a lot of those around them are going to say, I'm very spiritual, but I'm not religious. That is going to become the norm. That is not what we were messaging 20 years ago. To be spiritual when I was an undergrad was not... Um, was not cool. The cool thing, the sexy thing, was to be an atheist. And that is not where we're headed. 
As I studied apologetics, I wanted to gain clarity on the current apologetic challenges facing the church. At 42 years of age, I've witnessed a slow yet substantive shift in the attitudes of the culture. Specifically, I have noted that militant atheism seems to be declining while an undefined spiritualism seems to be on the rise, and that is concurrent with and fueling the current sexual revolution as well. I'm going to argue that the current sexual revolution that we're in, which we are in another one on a wider scale than that of the 60s, a lot of that is fueled by a pagan mentality of the obliteration of distinction. We'll come back to that. I've been helped by many resources, but I would say that it's the work of Dr. Peter Jones that has been most uniquely helpful. So if anything piques your interest here, I'm still a student. I'm still writing and working through all of these things. But if you want to look at someone who is one of my primary texts, look at the work of Dr. Peter Jones from Westminster Seminary. You will find him to be unnervingly accurate, in my opinion. Dr. Peter Jones says this, he wrote these words in 2015, which sounds like it was recent, but that was, was eight years ago. Jones says, the rules have changed. The trains have gone off the track. In our time, the old canopy of a more or less Christian civilization has been shredded, replaced by a new overarching structure of spiritual beliefs and practices. Many of the traditional plausibility structures that gave life meaning and significance under Christian influence in the West are unrecognizable. The meaning and context of spirituality and religion have undergone a paradigm shift no less fundamental. The notion of God now allows for polytheism, many gods, or pantheism, a god identical with the universe. The average millennial in the United States, for example, no longer defines a vital spiritual life as knowledge of and communion with the infinite yet personal creator and Lord of heaven and earth, who is revealed in the Bible. Note this line, spirituality in our day has become a do-it-yourself hobby that blends ancient Eastern practices with modern consumer sensibilities. So I'm going to pass this around, and actually this was not a part of my original lecture, but we had a young adult meeting last night, and a good friend from church, our church secretary actually came, she, she lives in this area, she goes, hey, you might want to use this in your lecture tomorrow. This is from the Minnetonka Community Education Winter and Spring 2024 magazine. So this is where you would find information on archery classes and sports and all different things, and in the lifelong learning page... We have an evening with Jody Liven, when the spirit moves you. Sounds Christian. Here's this $35 class. Exploring signs from spirits, the ability to communicate with spirits is not just for a chosen few. Discover the honorable connection we all have with those we love no matter where they are. Identify spirit signs and learn authentic methods of interpretation. For $65, you can also take a class on aura and chakra reading. Or, for another $65, you can learn about past life regression, about who you were in previous cycles of reincarnation. This has always been here. 20 years ago, I'm old enough to say, when I had to buy textbooks for college and I had to go to Barnes & Nobles and physically get them, there was always a New Age section in the back, right? But now all of that has been moved to the front. So what I'm arguing is not that this is something new, it's that it is becoming commercialized, institutionalized, and normalized. So I'm going to pass this around just so you can see it. 
We're going to continue moving here. So on your handout, we're at the heading that says, The New Age is Old News. And it's not called the New Age anymore. That's old language. It's called progressive spirituality. The New Age is Old News. The New Age has Gnostic roots. Gnostic roots. If you want to understand New Age ideology and where we're at now, you have to understand that there's a heavy dose of Gnosticism. A lot of theologians refer to Gnosticism as the perennial heresy because it comes up in every generation in some form or fashion. Gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge. And Gnostics claim to have a special knowledge that was hidden from most people. Although they often use similar terms and rituals as Christians, the Gnostics interpret them according to deeper secret meanings. Many scholars believe that one of Paul's aims in writing to the Colossians was to combat an early form of Gnosticism and probably the same thing in 1 John as well. So it's not that you have to be an expert in Gnosticism, but if you want to extract some of what the New Testament is beginning to combat, specifically in Colossians, you need to be aware of the ancient Gnostics. The Nag Hammadi text, so you say, well, where does Gnostic teaching come from? The Nag Hammadi scrolls were discovered in Egypt in 1945, right at the end of World War II, at the foot of a cliff along the Nile River. They were discovered by an Egyptian peasant who found a large jar that contained a 4th century set of manuscripts. Sounds very similar to the caves of Qumran, doesn't it? Here's a sample of the writing from one of the Gnostic texts. This is called the Trimorphic Protonoia. It speaks of a divine feminine power. Also in these Gnostic texts, it highlights the practice of lesbianism. In these texts, it says, I am androgynous. Andros gune. I'm a combination of male and female. Does that sound relevant? I am androgynous. I am both mother and father since I copulate with myself. That was at the essence of Gnostic teaching what is the hidden knowledge? In the Gospel of Thomas, now if you remember the Da Vinci Code, a lot of that movie was extracted from Gnostic writings. Dan Brown. <laughs> In the Gospel of Thomas, at the upper room scenario, it portrays Jesus as pulling Thomas aside and whispering to him. When Thomas returns to the other disciples, they say, what did the master tell you? And he says, if I told you, you would stone me. To a Jew, that means whatever he told me, if I told you what he said, you'd think it was blasphemy. So what did Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas actually say? He told him what is at the heart of Gnosticism, the hidden knowledge. What, what is the hidden knowledge? It's that you are Christ. That's what Jesus told him. You are Christ. We are all Christ. All things are connected. All is all this is at the heart of Gnosticism, is the obliteration of distinctions and all of it collapsing into a spiritual oneism. Ronald Nash on Gnostic salvation. How did salvation work in Gnosticism? Listen to this. Under Gnosticism, Christ came into the world not in order to suffer and die, but in order to release the divine spark of light imprisoned in matter. You ever heard someone say, I think we all have a divine spark within us? I taught this not too long ago at my church, and one of the young ladies, she was working at a coffee shop, 
right after I taught on this, she says, hey, just this week I had a, a customer, a middle-aged lady, ask me while I was making her drink, you know, how am I doing? What am I up to? And I told her I was taking a Bible class, and she said, you know, honey, I just, I just think there's a divine spark in everyone. Where does this language come from? I think the 1960s have not gone away. They have just become institutionalized, become educated, and reproduced itself on a global level. Ronald Nash says that the Gnostic Jesus was not a savior, he was a revealer. He came for the express purpose of communicating his secret knowledge. So I'm going to go very quickly in an overview of Gnosticism because I want to keep moving us ahead, but I think this is important because Gnosticism is a heresy that just won't go away. The Gnostics often believed in one transcendent supreme God who was utterly silent. However, there are numerous intermediate gods known as ions and dark evil gods known as archons that hover just above the earth. The universe, having been created accidentally by an inferior and ignorant power, that's how Gnostics view the God of the Bible. He's powerful, but he accidentally created the world, and he's kind of a buffoon. It says that the world is a dark prison in which human souls are held captive. You can see how perhaps the snake is the wise one in Gnostic understanding, who comes to reveal the knowledge, and this buffoon of a lesser God is angry that he would give away the secret because he wants to keep power for himself. A human being is a divine spark that originated in the transcendent divine world, and by means of knowledge or gnosis, he can be released from the cosmic prison and return to its heavenly origin. The human body, on the other hand, is part of the cosmic prison from which the spirit, the real person, must be redeemed. Mystical experience was an important part of Gnosticism. Religious experience for the, for the Gnostics involved joy in the salvation won through knowledge, as well as an extreme alienation from and revolt against the physical world. I'm going to skip over that. So what's, how is this relevant to where we're headed today? I'm just getting underneath. Where's this new age kind of resurgence coming from? Well, if you go all the way back to the headwaters, a lot of it has to do with Gnosticism. And so there's a lot going on in Gnosticism that may or may not be relevant, but I think at this point, it's safe to say we all are smelling in the culture around us that the idea of the human being being divine, being a, a God, finding, going within, finding the God within. Some of you remember Shirley MacLaine back in the 80s, out on a limb. That didn't go away. It's just become marketed. What are some of the contributing factors to modern paganism, this this modern iteration of this Gnostic idea that there's a divine spark in all of us and we just need to tap into it. Here's some of the contributing factors. I won't explain them ad nauseum. If you want more, we can do it in the Q&A. Some of the things that have led to this is 19th century transcendentalism. This is a movement emphasized uh, intuition over sense perception, and it held that God had revealed himself in all religions. That's at the root of Gnosticism and the root of a lot of the modern paganism is that the old truth that the Gnostics were kind of clued into is that there, there is a divine power in the universe that we can all tap into. And every religion is just a different manifestation of that. It's syncretism on steroids. Also contributing to the current state is a revival of the occult. The Theosophical Society in 1875 reversed to divine wisdom. 
It was founded in New York by Madame Blavatsky and Henry Alcott. It taught that ascended masters are people who have finished their earthly evolutions or reincarnation, and they give help to lesser evolved humans who are spiritually attuned. It also taught that there was a central truth common to all religions. That's what's under the core. Paganism. There's things like anthroposophy. We won't spend time on that. The arcane school. Spiritism has contributed to the rise of modern paganism. It emerged in 1948 in New York, and it's a forerunner of what is known as channeling or communicating with dead humans. Uh, channeling and communicating has always been around seances, but as you can see now, you can pay $35 to take a class in the Minnetonka Community Ed Building to learn how to do that. Astrology, not astronomy, has contributed to the rise of modern paganism. Listen to this. Astrology believes that man evolves in approximately 2,000-year cycles that correspond to the zodiac. Have you noticed, this is just interesting to me, that some of the same, mostly young people, not all, but some of the people I encounter today, on the one hand, affirm science is the only truth, Darwin got it right. And then they'll turn around and check their zodiac sign and take it very seriously. Do, do you feel the dissonance here? That's where we are. What is interesting is that according to traditional astrological understanding, man evolves in a 2,000-year cycle that corresponds to the zodiac. The term new age is drawn from the notion that man is moving out of the age of Pisces. What's the sign for Pisces? What is often associated with Christendom? Fish. We are moving out of that age and we are moving into the age of, this is the dawning of the age of Aquarius, who is the female water bringer, the feminine divine power. Remember that, we'll come back to it. And actually, I'm going to quote Aaron Rodgers, who quoted that on a podcast. I almost ran off the road. Anyway. What else has contributed to the rise of modern paganism? The inadequacy of secular humanism. This is huge. This is huge. This is, what, this is just my term. I don't know if, if someone else has said it, but this is what I call it. I call it the nihilistic vacuum. The nihilistic vacuum. Here's what I mean. The inadequacy of secular humanism has contributed to the rise of the New Age movement. When human reason, science failed to eradicate all human problems, and nihilism made humans feel alone in a vast and meaningless universe. So if you push that message that we are all we have, we're just atoms, we're just molecules, we're in a, we're in a vast nothingness, there's no aim to anything, nothing is nothing. Now Nietzsche came along and said, now how you survive that is dialectical courage. You just chart your own path in the face of nothingness. But most people are not of Nietzsche's brand of living. Most people get to a point where nihilism and nothingness leaves a big vacuum because we're made in the image of God and we are inherently worshipers. So nihilism, I think at this point, has left a huge vacuum that will be filled with religion of some kind. And I believe that old pagan practices are rushing in to fill that vacuum. The old gods are filling the vacuum. Also, we can't deny or overlook that one of the contributing factors to where we are today in a neo-pagan, 
post-Christian society where everyone's spiritual but not religious is the counterculture of the 1960s. Sexually, politically, religiously, the 1960s laid the groundwork for the New Age movement. During this time, there were utopian ideas the use of psychedelic and mind-consciousness-expanding drugs, an ecological outlook, an interest in the occult, and a rejection of traditional morality, all these things converged with an increased interest in Eastern religions, specifically Hinduism. Raise your hand if you remember those days. I mean, am I wrong? Right. If you want to read about that, this is an author named Philip Goldberg. He wrote a book in 2013. He is a Jewish author, not a Christian, but he wrote a book called American Veda. From Emerson and the Beatles to yoga and meditation, how Indian spirituality changed the West. Philip Goldberg, American Veda. He just does an overview, an incisive overview of how Eastern religion has invaded and influenced the West. So what are some of the unifying ideas around modern paganism? What unites? And that's one thing that makes this very, very difficult. Uh, as I'm working on my doctoral work in apologetics, it would be very easy to do something on traditional Islam because they have a Quran, they have a book, they have sacred text, they have uniform dogma, and, and those are things you can look at and understand and interact with. Same thing, in some sense, goes for Hinduism, although it's much more complicated. The New Age movement is an amalgamation of Gnosticism, Eastern religion, and undefined spirituality, and occult practices, which makes it very, it's like nailing jello to the wall. But because I'm a dad, and I'm a pastor, and because I, I love God's people, and I want the gospel to be explicit, I feel like I have to understand this as best I can. What are some of the unifying ideas around modern paganism? One is evolutionary optimism. So I can't point you to the New Age textbook, but I can, I can extract from what I'm seeing, and I can say these are the things that are pushing it forward. One of them is evolutionary optimism. What do you mean? Despite hardships and suffering, the New Age movement of today, progressive spirituality, believes that humanity is evolving from the age of Pisces to the age of Aquarius. They really believe this. What does that mean? It means that the Christian interlude, called in astrological circles the age of Pisces, the fish, which was fueled by masculine yang energy, that's why we had so many wars, and it was so brutal the last 2,000 years, it is now being eclipsed and is coming to an end and it's being superseded by the feminine yin energy of the age of Aquarius. So many spiritual people around us that believe these things, that the universe in an undefined way is calling the shots, they're very hopeful because they feel that though there may be troubles and pains along the way, we are on the cusp. The 1960s was the dawn of the age of Aquarius, but we are inheriting the age of Aquarius and it's going to be marked by a softer, feminine energy where this man-made utopia that we've longed for for so long that John Lennon sang about when he sang Imagine that's finally coming to pass. And people like you with your dogma and the insistence that Jesus is the only way to God are going to be a big problem. 
The early church was called atheists because they denied the gods of the government and of the culture. They only believed in one God. I think we're going back to that in our day. We may not find ourselves in a Colosseum, but there again, maybe we will. <laughs> Evolutionary optimism is fueling a lot of this modern spirituality. Doug Gruthius, he says, New Age utopians envision a new world order, sometimes described as involving a one-world government, global socialism, or New Age religion wherein self-realized righteousness dwells. Some individuals and groups expect a world leader to show us the way to the new age. Others emphasize personal direction. A word that you need to get acquainted with when it comes to understanding this resurgence of paganism is the word monism. M-O-N-I-S-M, monism. Or, Peter Jones has said, you can also call it oneism. Oneism, what do we mean? Monism, or oneism, sees the world as self-creating. The world is self-referential and self-explanatory. Everything in the world is made up of the same stuff, whether it is matter or spirit or a mixture of these things. There is one kind of existence which, in one way or another, we worship as divine, even if that means worshiping ourselves, that you understand a oneist, monistic worldview takes spirit and matter and everything and collapse. It's pantheism on steroids. So because we are part of this system of the universe, everything is divine. We are divine. The universe is divine. There's a power there. It's a Star Wars theology. You can tap into the power of the universe if you have the right secret sauce and it can be used for good or evil, right? If you think there wasn't a theology to Star Wars, go back and research it. I lost my place. Okay, we got to keep going. Though there is apparent differentiation and even hierarchy, all distinctions are in principle eliminated. Did you hear that? Monism, this push, this Gnostic pagan idea, what's, what's a, a marker of this is that it is, it is aiming at the removal of distinctions because dogma is bad because it won't bring in the utopian society that we're looking for. So you think, how does this relate to today? What, what is the sexual revolution of our day marked by? The eradication of distinctions. Okay? There is apparent differentiation, but it's aiming at all distinctions being eliminated and everything having the same worth. So there's also a note, to make it more confusing, of economic monism, otherwise known as Marxism. Okay? So there's many tributaries running into this. I think Nietzsche has something to say. I think Marx has something to say. I think Freud has something to say. But underneath all of that is what? Paganism. The removal of distinctions and the tapping into the, the energy of the universe and finding the divine within. What's another? And if you, if you want to call it something, Peter Jones calls this a homocosmology. Like this worldview is homocosmology. Everything cosmologically, it's all one. We as Christians, Bible-believing Christians, believe in a heterocosmology. We believe there is a sovereign creator God who is distinct and who is holy. Even though he is imminent and personal, he is other. Like that's, you say holy, immediately that's what we're talking about. He is other. 
That's what makes us different than a monistic worldview. What's another unifying idea? Pantheism. Pantheism, the great oneness of being is thought to be God. All that is at its metaphysical root is God. The New Age God is not a moral being worshipped as supreme. Such a God is impersonal and amoral. It's an it, not a he. Furthermore, the deity is democratized, meaning we are all God. Self-deification is now as popular as it is unbiblical and unrealistic. The New Age takes the truth that we are made in God's image and warps it to mean something else. Elevated consciousness is also another unifying idea of this modern spirituality, and this is where Aaron Rodgers, of all people, gets factored in. New Agers are often encouraged to be initiated, not just interested. Many mystical means serve this same end, whether they be non-Christian meditation techniques, drugs, yoga, the use of crystals, or spontaneous experiences like near-death encounters. Now, I was driving along, and I was listening to a podcast, very popular podcast. I'm not a football guy, and if I was, I don't know that I'd be a Packer guy as Rogers was at the time. Um, I lived in Wisconsin. I could pick on him. But it was Aaron Rodgers, who we all know, speaking on a very popular podcast to another guy, and he was sharing about his ayahuasca journey. Now, again, I'll explain what that is. It, it's an LSD-based drug that is used in South America. It's a very old drug. It's a psychedelic drug that expands your mind. And interestingly, how it's used in South America traditionally is for exorcisms. I'm just going to read a transcript from Aaron Rodgers, of all people, talking as if it's the most normal thing in the world about where he is and what he's doing. And again, these things have always been around, but when it becomes that normalized, my radar goes up and goes, we do not live in an atheistic society. We don't. That ship has sailed. People are incurably religious, and they're filling the vacuum with the old gods. Here's Aaron Rodgers talking about his his recent trip to South America. He says, there's a lot of trust in the process in which you consume a hallucinogenic tea as a path to enlightenment. Enlightened to what? The fact that I'm God and that the universe, there's, there's an energy here. Sin is not the problem. Ignorance is the problem, you see. And that's why you need knowledge. Hidden knowledge. He says... Uh, it's a path to enlightenment, and surrender, I think, is another good word. You have to surrender to the master plant teacher that is ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is just a plant-based hallucinogen, but because everything is one, the plant itself, as part of the universe, is teaching you, you see. He says, there's naturally some fear around this, and when you do, some pretty incredible things can happen, as was evidenced by night two of my most recent journey. Night one, I was still a little resistant. Night two, I finally surrendered to the process and to the master teacher. Notice this. He says, and she was benevolent in her lessons. Who's the she? The energy of the universe being channeled through this plant. There's a lot of overall happiness that exists when you have a deeper love for yourself. It actually allows you, I feel, to give and receive love better and to interact with people with less judgment and less projection. So that's one thing I've really been working on. Much was made of Roger's forearm tattoo when he got it. Present in it are his two godsons. They are two amazing boys, but they're in the form of the constellations of their astrological signs. There are calm and roaring lions, 
This is the eagle that holds the balance of fire and water. Remember the removal of distinctions? It's all about balancing things. Good and evil, light and dark, male, female. That's the pagan ideal. And that's exactly what he's saying. This tattoo that he has is packed with New Age imagery. He says, it's things that, you know, it's the whole universe itself. And then there's deeper meanings, but, he smiles, I want to leave those to the imagination. That is one of the contributing factors to where we are. When someone as prolific and well-known as Aaron Rodgers can, can go and talk about his use of hallucinogenic drugs, and when he talks about that experience, he says, it brought him to the edge of death because he saw creatures going in and out of his body and it terrified him. But then at the end, the universe embraced him. I mean, that's, wasn't it like, that's torture tactics, isn't it? Where you terrorize, 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 and then embrace. It's demonic to the core. But this is exactly, but he says, by doing that, now that I've been brought to the edge of death and then embraced by the universe, I don't fear anything. You think, well, that's really weird. Yeah, weird things happen all the time in a fallen universe, but the fact that it's becoming normalized. We are not inheriting an atheistic culture. That's just not where we're going. What else is another unifying idea to modern paganism? Moral relativism? The phrase, create your own reality, or manifesting, is becoming more common in New Age circles. Uh, to realize your own divine potential. Uh, unlimited human potential is another unifying idea that fuels this movement. If we are all God, it is thought that the prerogatives of the deity pulsate within us. We are endowed beyond measure, if this be the case. We are miracles waiting to happen. Untethered from such old age fables like human finitude and depravity and original sin, we are free to explore the luminous horizons of godhood Ignorance is our only problem. The unlimited ones yearn for mastery of self and the cosmos. Knowledge of the God within results in power over all. We are not fettered by an external and objective reality. This is the mentality that is fueling the modern spiritual revolution. Channeling is becoming more normative. This can take many forms, necromancy, seances, contact with ancient spirits. You can pay $35 and go to Minnetonka and learn how to do it. The medium or channeler is often possessed by the spiritual entity who imparts this knowledge. So some of these people are charlatans who just take your money. Sometimes they actually make contact with something, but it's not holy. And they're opening doors that will be hard to close. So you think, well, we're reformed. You know, we... We don't get caught up. You know, we, we know there's not a devil behind every door. I, I understand that, and so am I. But we neglect demonic activity to our detriment, which as this becomes more normative, my personal opinion is that we will see an uptick of demonic activity in our day. Channeling is becoming more normative because if there's a power in the universe and you're part of that power and everything's deified, why wouldn't you want to tap into it? What's to be afraid of? Hillary Clinton, when the Clintons were in office, had her own personal channeler to help her contact the spirit of Eleanor Roosevelt. These things are very, very normative, and that wasn't even recent, guys. There's a lot of talk of extraterrestrials right now, an uptick and an interest of, 
ascended masters and, and these extraterrestrials. If you read the, uh, and I'm, I'm not into QAnon and I don't wear a tinfoil helmet, but I, it's becoming more popularized. It's interesting that when these aliens make contact with people in dialogue, what are they normally telling them? They're seeing them as ascended masters who are coming to enlighten us to the fact that we are gods and to our unlimited human potential. It's Gnosticism. Also, religious syncretism is fueling this mentality in our day. New Age spirituality in our day is an undefined blend of Eastern religion, Western occultism, neo-paganism, and self-help psychology. All right, here's a synopsis. You're thinking, my goodness, I told you it'd be a lot. I'm sorry. Blame Levi. He says, you got one hour. I'm like, I need four. I might even give you a seventh inning stretch just to get the blood flow. All right, but here's a synopsis. If you say, okay, bring this all together. What, what are some of the unifying ideas about the modern spiritual movement that we're experiencing? I can't point you to the New Age Bible. It doesn't exist. But here are the things that hold it together essentially. So when you encounter a coworker that says, I'm spiritual but not religious, like what is their worldview? Probably something like this. The Bible must be interpreted esoterically. Meaning, they'll take a Bible from you. Like, cool. I'm spiritual. <laughs> but they mean that the enlightened look for its hidden meanings and symbols. So their hermeneutic is going to be way different than yours. Many sources of revelation. Meaning, this whole resurgent new age sees every world religion teaching the same core truth. Or what is called, and pay attention to this because you might hear it in in the upper echelon, the perennial philosophy. What's the perennial philosophy? Is that there's a, underneath all the religions of the world, way down there at the bedrock, there's a unifying reality. And essentially that unifying reality is that everything is divine. The Native Americans had their way to get to it, the Mayans had their way to get to it, you know, the Christians and the Catholics, the Hindus, but underneath it all, so... In our day, you might not find someone averse to the idea of coming to church or even talking about Jesus, because Jesus, as we'll see, is another enlightened person who can help you find the Christ within. So there are many sources of revelation. Pantheism is one of the unifying ideas, meaning God is all there is and all is one. If you hear the verbiage of all is all, or as above, so below, the collapsing of the two, Aleister Crowley used that language. A lot of the occult used that language. Another uh, part of the just kind of summarizing modern paganism is that Jesus attained Christhood. Meaning the human, Jesus, was attuned to the cosmic Christ spirit and he became enlightened. I'm starting to hear that verbiage more, the Christ spirit. That's not the Jesus you think of. Also that man is divine, meaning this modern spirituality sees everyone as possessing a spark of the divine and therefore has unlimited potential. Unlimited potential. You, you are a miracle waiting to happen. Your problem is not sin. There's no such thing. Your problem is ignorance of who you really are. And if I can teach you the secret sauce to go within and find the God within, you would, your, your potential would just be exponential. I mean, who doesn't want to hear that? We come along speaking about sin and depravity and wickedness and holiness and hell. 
That doesn't sell very well, but that'll sell. Especially to a generation like me who everyone got participation trophies. I already think I'm awesome. <laughs> Finally, sin is ignorance. And what is, what is the soteriology, the, the view of salvation of the modern New Age resurgence? It is not the eradication of sin. How we think of salvation, we think of saving from sin. Their view of salvation is being saved from ignorance. Being saved from ignorance. As divine, humans are a law unto themselves. Man is simply ignorant of his divinity. So I want to bring you to the work of Peter Jones because, again, I think Dr. Jones has done excellent, excellent work. I was so excited, guys. When I started, I kind of declared the focus of my doctoral work. I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to be the weird pagan occult guy because <laughs> I don't think too many people want to do this, but I was excited because Dr. Jones has been, been messaging this for a long time. Back in the early 90s, he wrote books on uh, the Gnostic Empire Strikes Back and different things. And you kind of read it and go, what? But it makes perfect sense now. And I emailed Dr. Jones. I thought, I'm just going to go out on a limb and just ask him, hey, I'm, I'm a young guy, pastor. I'm, I'm doing some doctoral work, and I think you got it right. I'd love to, to take the work that you've done and just extrapolate on it, because I, I think you were very incisive. He's not going to respond. He's a busy guy, and he's, a, he's an academic. And I, weeks later, in my inbox, it says, Peter Jones. <gasps> so I frantically, I, you know, you kind of get excited. I think, okay, here we go. Open. Dear Aaron, teach a Christian worldview. Dr. Jones. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Jones. Appreciate the... Uh, Robust response? <laughs> Nevertheless, I think Dr. Jones has done extremely good work. So let's take, with the time that we have, let's look at what he has to say, and then I'll end with a challenge going out of here. One-ism versus two-ism. Jones says that either the transcendent creator is at the origin of everything created and sustains it all, or the universe itself in all its seeming variety is all there is. According to the Bible, God's existence and identity is the proper frame for our own. Dr. Jones notes that humanist or materialistic or atheistic thinkers like Marx and Freud and Nietzsche and Darwin, they left humanity with the stark reality that science and human ingenuity cannot stop suffering. Prior to World War I, we thought we were doing pretty good. There was a lot of optimism in the ingenuity of man. Coming off the heels of the origin of species, right? If we could go back to that industrialized time, science and human ingenuity was going to win the day. World War I, my great-grandfather served. World War II, and all the caskets that were produced for that horrific reality, kind of put humanistic optimism on its heels, that the idea of human ingenuity and, and science bringing about a utopia took a heavy blow. And that left humans craving a spiritual... What, what, if you were to say, why was the 1960s, how did that happen? How did we go from the 1950s, you know, this kind of Andy Griffith reality, to the 1960s? I would say it was because World War I, World War II, and the stark reality that human ingenuity in and of itself cannot stop depravity 
left a spiritual vacuum that became the 1960s, that drugs and Eastern religion and all these other pseudo-gospels rushed in to fill the void. And that has not gone away. It just went to college and got jobs and had kids and has reproduced itself through the media. The hippies in the 1960s were very individualized. Today, the hippies of our day are global. It's not about personal enlightenment. It's about global enlightenment. The perennial philosophy continues to be an issue. According to Jones, he's talking about uh, quoting Aldous Huxley. Some of you know that name. The perennial philosophy, paganism, recognizes a divine reality substantial to the world of things and finds in the soul something similar to or even identical with divine reality. Rudiments of the perennial philosophy may be found among the traditionary lore of primitive peoples in every religion of the world. And in its fully developed forms, it has a place in every one of the higher religions. Jones notes that the current revival of spiritualism, ushered in through therapeutic psychology and popular mysticism, has deep roots in the long and troubled history of creator-denying paganism. The origin and nature of this spirituality helps reveal the true identity of these influences, being adopted since the middle of the last century by people who assume such ideas and practices are perfectly normal and good for the soul. Jones notes that in 1968, the Beatles went to Rishikesh, India. In 1970, their guru, Maharishi Yoga, came to the United States. Some of you can remember John Lennon's song, Imagine, released in in 1971. With everything that we've talked about in mind, this kind of resurgent paganism and hidden knowledge of the Gnostics and this idea that the universe is a power unto itself and we're all part of that and connected and our problem is ignorance of our interconnectedness to the divine and you know the dogmas that separate us and the distinctions that separate us and the, the hierarchies that separate us, both economic and gender and you know, all these things, they, they all contribute to our ignorance and separation right? And the hidden knowledge, the enlightenment is to get underneath that, to see the interconnectedness of it all, right? Here's the words to the song Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion to. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. That is the theme song of pagan spirituality. And there's also hints of Marxist economic thought in there as well. Another name we need to know, Carl Jung. J-U-N-G, Carl Jung, disciple of Freud. Father of modern psychology. Is modern psychology influential to the way people view the world? Answer, yes. Psychology has a lot to do with shaping the the zeitgeist of our age. So then I would want to know, who's the father of modern psychology? It's Carl Jung. Well, what's the big deal with Carl Jung? 
Carl Jung, according to Jones, says that he was Freud's disciple. He's the father of modern analytical psychology. Carl Jung said in the 1950s, quote, we are only at the threshold of a new spiritual epoch, the end of the Christian era. Jones notes that Jung predicted a reinterpretation of Christianity's view of God through Hindu Vedantic pantheism and the victory of a self-realizing spirituality, which included the practice of yoga, which etymologically comes from the word to be yoked to something, and it typically is to the god or demon that you are worshiping. So just don't freak out about yoga per se, but I have opinions on it, <laughs> just because it means what it means. Carl Jung, a lot of people were saying, hey, the, the father of modern analytical psych psychology, like a lot of our young people go to college and get psychology degrees, a lot of it came from Carl Jung, and I think Carl Jung was an occultist. I, I think he was a New Age occultist, and people poo-pooed that away until fairly recently his Red Book was released, and it was his personal letters in which he reveals he was steeped in Gnostic thought, occult practices, and all kinds of sexual morality. So the father, the father of analytical psychology that we have inherited was deeply paganized. This, this whole idea of finding the God within, the eradication of guilt, the balancing of opposites, you can see how all of that has Gnostic roots. What about pagan sexuality? If we're going to talk about one of the four horsemen of the woke apocalypse and, and what is happening in our day, there's a lot of talk of the sexual revolution, but if you want to understand the current sexual revolution and, and how gender fluidity and all these things, what's underneath that is paganism, the eradication of distinctions and the self-deification of man. A oneist worldview calls for the eradication of boundaries, a balancing of the opposites. Now, this is just an aside, so I'm not drawing a straight line from this to what I just said, but it's interesting uh, it was in Oklahoma not too long ago. There was a big kind of brouhaha because they wanted to erect a Baphomet next to the Ten Commandments. Uh, the Baphomet is typically associated with the Church of Satan. You've probably seen it. It's the body of a man with a goat head, right? But if you notice, it also has the breast of a female. So the Baphomet, the sign of the Church of Satan, is man and beast, male and female. It's actually an androgynous being. And that is at the core of this whole idea, is the eradication of distinctions and the blending of opposites. One can immediately draw a connection between this view of reality and the recent interest in sexual fluidity, and you're hearing the word androgyny come up again, aren't you? This is the demolishing of boundaries and distinctions and dogma and barriers that all hold us back from that utopian oneness society that we've been longing for for so long that the age of Aquarius promises to bring. This is nothing new. What do you mean? This whole idea, I mean, it looks shocking when you say the idea of, you know, transgenderism and, and male and female confusion, this seems so disorienting. It's pagan to the core. Listen to this. I thought this was fascinating. Androgynous priest, male-female blending. Androgynous priests were associated with the worship of the goddess Ishtar in the Sumerian age in 1800 BC. It is recorded of the Canaanite goddess Anat that her priest dressed up and wore makeup like women. 
At the beginning of the 5th century A.D., this is Jones, borrowing from his research, at the beginning of the 5th century A.D., the cult of the goddess Sibylle, or Sibyl, continued to have success. Augustine, in his book City of God, describes firsthand the public display of homosexual priests that he called, he called the Galloi. Augustine says this, They were seen yesterday, their hair moist, their faces covered in makeup, their limbs flaccid, their walk effeminate, wandering through the streets and squares of Carthage, demanding from the public the means to subsidize their shameful life. Why would they do this? Rank immorality? Sure. But this is going all the way back to Romans 1, when they rejected the holy, sovereign creator and exchanged the truth for the lie and worshiped the creation. This is exactly where this is coming from. Transgenderism has pagan roots. It's the blending of the opposites and the eradication of distinction. There's nothing new. Jones often refers to Paul's words in Romans 1.25, the exchanging of truth for a lie, as the biblical basis for understanding ancient and modern movements toward blending, blending gender roles and sexual perversion. Jones notes that Romans 1.25 is a great example of the biblical understanding that though sexual sin is indeed an issue of immoral behavior, it's even more an expression of a religious commitment even if many do not realize it. Listen to this. Sexual inversion of the created order is an embodied manifestation of oneist worship and cosmology. The blending sexual inversion of the created order is an embodied manifestation. When a man blends his manliness with female attributes, it is an embodiment of a pagan worldview that says, I am God. No dogma, no distinction. Your problem is ignorance. I am the enlightened one. You're the one that is still in bondage to dogmatic hierarchies. I have been enlightened and set free. You see the inversion. Oneism is espoused by globalist politicians. So what about the 1960s and the people who are educated and steeped in this mentality where did they go? I ask my wife sometimes, I'm like, where did all the hippies go? They went to college. And then they got jobs and started businesses and became professors. Got into politics. Oneism is espoused by globalist politicians. United Nations documents defining the planet's future Hollywood spiritualists, leaders from all the world's religions, and self-proclaimed progressive liberals. These have no place for God the Creator and celebrate the oneism of universal justice, pansexuality, and interfaith religion. Modern oneism claims we can create a paradise of human flourishing where all people will get along. The vision seems good and beautiful, but it's based on a delusion. Prince Charles, now King Charles a patron of the Timonos Academy. I believe it was in 2006. I'm going off my notes by memory now, but I believe in 2006 was quoted as saying, essentially, unless we realize the divine essence of nature, we are doomed to failure. That what is the path forward for us is to go back to the ancients, the old gods who got it right. They understood 
that underneath all of our dogmatic religion, there is a unifying theme that the universe is divine, we are divine, we are all one. And John Lennon's song, hopefully, we are going to see it come to pass. Imagine all the distinctions gone and man as one. And of course, we need some enlightened few to lead us into this wonderful utopian future. What do we do? So Levi was wise. He said, if you're going to come and and tell us all the problems, tell us what to do. (laughs) Well, this is really confusing stuff. Thankfully, the answer is not that hard. Preach the gospel. (laughs) What I mean is, think about 1 Peter 3.15. Kind of the, the proof text for apologetics, right? It says, give a defense for the hope that you have within you to everyone who asks. But when it says to do that, it first says, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So the first thing we must do as we seek to give a defense to go out into this world and to take their worldview and flip it around right side and say, no, 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 not everything is divine. We are not divine in the way you think about it. There is an other creator whose name is God who sent his son, Jesus Christ. The problem is not ignorance. The problem is sin. Hell is yawning and swallowing you by the millions every day. The problem is your sin and your depravity and your only hope is Jesus Christ, period. The way, the truth, the life. That's where we're going. But what does 1 Peter 3.15 say we have to do first? It says, honor Christ the Lord in your hearts as holy. Meaning what? We must firmly establish the lordship of Christ in our hearts, in our lives. In our apologetic interactions, it is so easy to become arrogant and angry and defensive or even fearful and compromising. Peter, who wrote 1 Peter, shocker, knows what it's like to struggle with anger and to almost fall away. So he is zealous for us, Pastor Peter to be mindful at all times of the worth and value and supremacy and goodness of our Lord. And after we take that humble but settled posture, Christ is Lord, I'm a sinner saved by grace, we are to give a defense for the hope that we have, an apologia. It's a legal term. Apologetics is a legal term. It means to speak away the charges. Meaning, we are to give a reasoned, clear intellectually satisfying defense of faith. We are not calling people to make a blind leap of faith. We are calling them to make an informed leap into the light, not into the darkness. And we do this, Peter says, with gentleness and respect, meaning we are dependent on honoring Christ as Lord, and we are aware of our own sinfulness, and we have an understanding of the times and the worldviews of our opponents We are to be marked, beloved, by compassion and conviction, by grace and grit. There's that. What else do we do? Establish a twoist worldview. Twoist meaning a biblical worldview, that there is a distinction between the Creator and everything else. It is not a collapsed system. This is what Peter Jones was telling me in his brief email. If you want to get to the, the tip of the spear, separate God from the universe and point them to the creator and not created things. This is Romans 1. 
This was Dr. Jones' succinct counsel to me. The core distinction between the New Age worldview and the Christian worldview is the creator-creation distinction. Jones notes, quote, that when we say that God is holy, we're not only saying that he is morally pure, though he is, we are primarily speaking cosmologically. We are saying that he is utterly unique and primary in his being and that relative to everything else, he is other. It's interesting, when I was leading a church in Wisconsin not that long ago, I'm from the Twin Cities, but I was leading a church in Wisconsin from 2015 to 2020 before we finally came home and I'm at Redeemer now. But part of what I did was we would go out once a month and knock on doors. It's a city of about 60, I won't say the city, it's in southern Wisconsin, about 60,000. Um, kind of the biggest small town in the Midwest. Everybody knows everybody, but you know, but normal people. And we started going door to door and we were just literally going out two by two, knocking on doors, seeking to share the gospel. And in this kind of any town USA, I was met with a similar resounding response, and that is, hey, uh, do you have any church background? No. Do you, do, you have, do you have a church that you go to? No. Do you have a Bible in the house? No. What I, what I mean is, it, it's a pagan society. I, I thought at least we would go out and we would encounter people that would say, oh, we, we've had a family Bible or I went to VBS as a kid, you know, I'm not a Christian, you know, I've fallen off the wagon. I thought that would be the norm, and it wasn't. So we went back and retooled, and I actually had to write my own gospel track, because a lot of them assume too much. A lot of gospel tracks assume that my coworker, my neighbor, has a modicum of a biblical foundation, and they don't. They're pagans. And so I went, and I'm not saying this is the end-all, be-all, but I'm just proving the point that I had to go back and rewrite it, and it says, do you believe in God? And most of my gospel track was spent on the attributes of God and who He is, because they don't know. It's just a sign of the times. We must re-educate people on the nature and attributes of God. We must tell them about His aseity, His trinity, His sovereignty, His omnipotence, His omniscience, things that we take for granted. We must not take it for granted with interacting with our unsaved and unchurched pagan loved ones. Books such as The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink, who died in 1952, these books are more relevant than ever. Unashamedly submit to God-ordained distinctions. You hear that? That's one thing that we do. Unashamedly submit to God-ordained distinctions, meaning as biblical Christians, we embrace gender roles. We embrace God's design for marriage and domestic life and church order and society. Such submission is never onerous or humiliating. It is an alignment of the individual in joyful faith before God to the cosmic structures God has created and ordained for the common good. You want to be radical today? Obey the speed limit. Enjoy your family. Have babies. Just be a Christian. That's radical. Because you embrace those distinctions. You don't see hierarchy as oppressive. Because you know you live in God's universe. Who has ordained it to be this way. Men, don't be afraid of toxic masculinity. Be a man. God made you that way. Ladies, be a lady. Be feminine. Enjoy biblical womanhood. And you don't need to apologize to it. And just detox from the liberal feminism that's been message to you to make you feel bad for saying, I like being with my kids. You don't need to feel ashamed of that. Enough. 
We embrace distinctions that God has made because it's His universe. We're not trying to eradicate these things. Finally, make Christ explicit. Only in a Christian worldview is there the possibility of love because real love needs a genuine other. And God is genuinely other. When you collapse the universe into God is really nothing if He's everything, the possibility of love goes out the window because there's no sender-receiver dichotomy. So it's the biblical worldview that makes love possible because there's an other who is love. The question is not, why didn't God provide more than one Savior? So why can't we have many saviors? That's the wrong question. The question is, why has God so graciously provided a Savior? And His name is Jesus. That is what we tell people. I think most of our apologetic arguments are going to be centered on John 14, 6. If Jesus would have just said, I am a way, a truth, and a life, we'd all get along. But there's a definite article there that our Lord uttered. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through Him. That's going to be the battleground, and we've got to stand firm with grace and grit. All of this can be summed up in, what do we do going out of here, Pastor Aaron? What's our banner? What's our battle cry? What do we preach to ourselves when it gets crazy out there? It's just three words. Christ is Lord. Amen? Amen?